Welcome to The Lotus and the Fire. I'm Joseph Bobro. My guest today is Kridi. Kridi was born in the family of a Gandhian direct action leader and was raised in India by a single mother. She came to the U.S. for her Ph.D. and has done many years of research on the health of our soils, waters, and atmosphere. As a climate scientist, she is currently studying and promoting climate-smart farming methods in Asia among farmers and policymakers. A Rinzai Zen priest, her Dharma name is Kanko, Kridi is a co-founder of Boundless in Motion, Boulder Ecodharma Sangha, and Rocky Mountain Ecodharma Retreat Center. With friends, she is forming a yet-to-be-named, spiritually-rooted, interfaith, and decentralized direct action network that will take strategic actions to stop climate chaos and bring racial healing. Welcome, Kridi, to The Lotus and the Fire. Thank you so much, Joseph. It's an honor and, uh, to be here, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. So am I. Why don't we begin and, and have you tell us a bit about uh, yourself and, and your roots and, uh, and your path to social and ecological and spiritual activism? Uh, yes, very happy to talk about it. And in fact, today I was reading a biography of my maternal grandfather, Mm. Um, who was a Gandhian freedom fighter and lawyer and statesman in India. Uh, when I think of my root, you know, like he represents the root. And he, he was this, like, I, I get teary-eyed even to this day when I think about uh, his life. As a kid, he would walk five miles from his uh, village to just to go to school every day. And then he went on to be very influenced by Gandhi and Indian freedom struggle. And he was in jail for a total of three and a half years in his lifetime, mm -hmm. uh, multiple times before Indian independence and then after uh, Indian independence as well. And when you grow up with someone who had that kind of draw courage and clarity on why you need to speak up for justice and sacrifice for justice, uh, in some ways it's very daunting. You know, you have to try to find your place in the world where they are the shining star. And so when I went to college, having grown up with someone like my grandfather, um, I tried to be like him and I tried to speak up for what felt wrong. I would speak up against multinational corporations. I would try to parrot his phrases and sentences basically, but they were not authentic. They were not mine. Mm -hmm. And I uh, very quickly became very arrogant, very bitter, and very friendless. 
you know, that's a tough place to be. <laughs> you can imagine um, for someone who has gone to college. Um, at, by the time I came to United States in 2001 uh, to do my PhD in environmental science, um, I truly became depressed. Uh, coming to America was, um, it just didn't make sense to me. You know, the bitterness and arrogance had continued. I had lost some of my dear friendships in the process. And um, I couldn't make sense of giant wheels of consumerism in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was at that time that I met my root teacher, at Rutgers University. He used to lead free Zen classes there. And for for the longest time, I just was trying to understand my inner world and trying to make sense of why I got so depressed and just to experience the sanity of being in the moment, right? Uh, So, between 2002 and 2010 or so, even though I was studying environmental and climate science, my, my, the, the intellectual part of understanding where we are going uh, did not talk to my spiritual world. They were like two parallel tracks who were not speaking to each other and informing each other. Uh, at least consciously, but so by the but when but when after I got ordained and then finally when my teacher gave me permission to teach independently and we moved to Boulder, my husband is also a climate scientist. Uh, when when I began to t- teach myself, that's when I started thinking about my grandfather's quest for justice again and his understanding of systems of oppression again and actively started integrating why and how much activists and scientists need inner work and how much people who spend uh, decades doing navel gazing need to integrate understanding of systems of oppression in their, uh, you know, their quest for liberation, right? Um, yeah, does that answer your question about uh, the root? Yes, yes. Um, there are a number of streams running through you, and I can actually relate in, in you know, in my own life, uh, and so. Uh, I, I hear you integrating those streams and then trying to find a way to f- forget them and just come forward with, uh, with an integrated version. Um, and I, I respect that, that path very, very much uh, because I think we, we, we need all of it and we need each other to just come forward as ourselves. And... Um, uh, you know, I can also connect to, you know, what you said about parroting your grandfather. I remember when I began to uh, to teach Zen, I, I caught myself parroting my teacher, and I said, "What is this?" 
And it, t- it took me probably two years to sort of find uh, my stride or find my voice. You know, today, Kriti, there, there are a number of intersecting emergencies and crises, uh, along with a bona fide rebellion, a bona fide revolt. I wonder how you are holding up, how you're practicing with it, and if you could say a little bit. Communities just being friendships and communities, the fundamental pillar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish, you know, in, in earlier years, I sh- would have seen, uh, I would have said, oh, my practice you know, my daily practice is what is most important and that's what keeps me grounded. It still is very important, but I have come to understand that sitting by itself where there isn't a weaving of community stories, right? The the verbal part of being in a community is as important as sitting together you know, and doing community rituals together. That has been the pillar. Um, I don't, you know, we talked about this. I actually got sick with COVID and I spent three and a half months in that process. And as I was, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a climate scientist. So, you know, there is a, my, my somatic system this this body feels that pressure every time there is climate news and there is uh i and then i'm sick even though i might have worked through some of my previous small d traumas right uh the pressure is always building up so you have to constantly work on releasing it and i've uh, over the years i've become a big fan of doing grief work uh, as a community. So community where you can practice together um, in terms of meditation, do grief and rage work together. Uh, And then finding inspiration from people who who might be either actually on the streets or just really looking at where we want to be and how can we get there in radical ways. That's where, that's what keeps me together. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That feels very rich. Uh, I discovered something similar some years ago working with the war trauma and many veterans and families and children. And, you know, really seeing hundreds and a couple thousand in and doing retreats with them, uh, integrative retreats. That when we did some research, we found that the experience of community itself was the most potent variable in the post-traumatic growth, in the transformation from, you know, simply anguish into the kind of pain that can be integrated and and serve us going forward. And it's just been amazing to see and now to hear 
uh, you know, your story, that community itself, you know, in part sitting together in silence, but also speaking from our hearts and listening deeply to one another. Absolutely. I think without that, uh, one of my closest friends, uh, Maria uh, Telero is her last name. She, she says, we can't do anything without the soil of relationships. We are trying to create movement, right? And uh, you can't build movement, uh, especially given the sea of trauma that we live in, without, without the soil of genuine relationship. And just as you said right now, without that deep listening and authentic sharing, you know, you don't even begin to uh, compost the trauma that we live uh, with. Exactly. You know, it makes me think of something that I found online that you wrote, uh, which is apropos, given what you just said. You wrote, the lives of all species, along with our stories and economies, depend on very thin and precious layers of air, water, and soil. <laughs> So on, if, it's, if it's the biosphere or if it's the emotional biosphere, uh, we need that soil, that, that collective um, ingredient, nourishing ingredients, which often start with, with garbage and pain and, you know, composting that. Yes, you, you, you know it, right? You... I, 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 uh, that garbage, we've got plenty of it. Uh, I, you know, every time I look at the statistics, I'm just shocked that uh, more than 50% in some developing countries, 60, 70% of kids grow up with physical and sexual abuse. So it's like, who is going to create this radical movement that we need to protect our planet? You know, if you if you went to climate crisis, uh, my understanding is that the activist community has not fully confronted how much trauma we have. The activist spaces, uh, you are a psychotherapist, you know that activist spaces cannot become a psychotherapist's office where you can do the kind of listening and hearing and healing that's needed. But if the activist spaces are not aware of the extent of trauma and depth of trauma, we end up perpetuating those things that have brought us collectively where we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that and that's where the soil of relationships becomes so important, even in advocacy circles. And the interesting thing is that the coronavirus, this COVID crisis has really made um, e even the most top-down activist organizations question their way of operating, mm -hmm. question their culture, 
And people are slowly coming into saying, well, before we talk about your uh, goals, let's check in with everyone. How is everyone doing? So, yeah. Sorry Can if I take, took it on a tangent. Oh no, these are uh, these are wonderful tangents, uh, creative tangents. Uh, but just to pick up on on one element of this, uh, and that's grief. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've thought for a long time that grief as a subset of or, or uh, an ingredient in unprocessed trauma is along with trauma and collective suffering, all three are kind of relatively unaddressed in the, in the classical Buddhist teaching. S s talk to us about grief, about your experience, the emancipatory elements of it. Uh, you know, I, I kind of imagine something like, gr I don't imagine, I kind of know it, but I'll say imagine, that it kind of is the nourishment from the heavens that, that waters the, the soil of relationships. But, but t tell us, s speak about grief. So beautifully said, ha water from heavens that nurtures the soil of relationships that we need. You know, I was telling you how my intellectual world of climate and environmental science was like a parallel track with my spiritual world, that they didn't talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And what ended up finally connecting them was not me intellectually ruminating and saying, oh, these should be connected. Mm -hmm. It was my realization that what was keeping them separate was my reluctance to grieve how it feels when I read climate news. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to work on climate science and publish papers, write research articles, or even write books about it. But we human beings, um, even if we haven't had personal trauma, uh, the impact of this news that frozen methane in Antarctica is melting, if you allow that, uh, and if you know the climate science and you know what it means, my body cringes, my body somatically twists, and it's like I'm getting contorted talking about it, right? And grief is... If I allow myself, even now I would tear up and I'm always ready to do that. If I don't release that stress, it's like pee is building up in my system and my culture hasn't taught me how to release it, right? And I keep getting contorted and contorted and instead of my psyche being free to take uh, creative actions to confront this issue, I just stay contorted without grieving actively. And um, I, I remember that moment very clearly. We were seen uh, standing in a museum with a few friends talking about climate science. And 
And just suddenly, I just, I just was sobbing uncontrollably because uh, I had, I, I didn't realize at the moment, but uh, later I realized I had been stopping myself. I had been saying, I'm not going to allow, I'm not going to feel this. And once I began to feel it and allow that, allow the tears to uh, move, there was more space for me to say, I can take this on. I don't have to tell myself that I won't read climate news at night. And I can organize around it. And Dharma community can organize around it. And my two selves don't have to be separate. I can I can really relate. Um, you wrote that um, human life on the planet can't be saved and healed without recognizing that our biosphere, along with its intricate web of life-supporting processes, is really fragile. Um, and that our collective way of life is causing the extinction of tens of thousands of species, which our survival depends on, and that we need to and can protect the biosphere to protect ourselves and future generations. I've been asking everyone I've been having conversations with the same question, because i am really been wondering it very deeply now, we talk about interbeing, we talk about interconnection, but I think it's very challenging for, for so many of us humans on the planet to realize that the well-being of our Earth and our own well-being are joined at the hip. Somehow they are just disconnected and we feel like We've got to struggle and fight and bite and scrape to get by ourselves. And that's often in opposition to the, you know, what benefits the earth or what benefits others. As, as you think about the collective good, the biospheric good, and the individual good, what do you think makes it so difficult? Is it an epistemological problem? Is it... What do you think makes it so difficult for people to get that at a deep level and let that inform their lives? You know, you you I know you've thought about it, so it's there's no magic answer. Part of it is where we were going in the previous question, I feel. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, go ahead. That we, you know, we, we our, our, our trauma and unexpressed grief and rage makes us think, makes us want to distract ourselves even more, right? It's D not distra that... Distract or distra destroy? Did you... Both, both. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 uh, you know, it, and you are a psychotherapist, so you know how people show up in your office, right? We, 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 
we can be in therapy for years and not want to confront our primal grief, our raw rage, or, you know, and if, if, if you take an average person in India, in United States, anywhere, the, their soma, their body is holding so much stress, uh, the individual and family level stress, the, the racism put patriarchy on top of it. Caring about environment, unless our lives are directly dependent on it in a day-to-day -day way, the way they used to be for indigenous cultures, mm -hmm. uh, or, or is still uh, true for people of color around the world. We just think uh, we can barely take care of ourselves, I you know, and our lifestyles, uh, in, in, uh, especially people who live in suburbs, commuting for hours. I mean, things have changed under COVID. But uh, just keep, that keeps us in our bubbles. And even when people have these tiny windows open to them, COVID has opened some hearts in new ways. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like the window opens up and I probably want to change my life, but it will be a financial death if I let go of my lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell you how many young people or the peoples in 30s, 40s I meet who say, I am dying to change my lifestyle. I am sick of my lifestyle. And to live more in accord with benefiting all beings. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. But where do I begin? If I let go of my job, what will happen to my family? Or, uh, And then sometimes... Uh, Sometimes the trauma act, acts in other ways in which uh, accumulating more and more stuff is, is the only way people think they have to feel, uh, you know, pseudo love for themselves, right? Uh, so I think it, it boils down to facing our trauma and not being afraid of it and community is such an antidote you, you know True. as i was listening to you i heard something in a slightly different way you're right i've been thinking about this but it's nice and it's good to to converse together because it it dawned on me that in addition to the material obstacles to realizing more of a sense of of unity with creation it's the emotional obstacles themselves. That's to say, we either don't have the capacities or the wherewithal, or it's just too daunting, or we're allergic, or we're conditioned. Because in order to feel that my well-being co-arises with yours, I need to feel the pain of what's happening to you. Absolutely. To, to Mother Earth. I, I can't see that we, we, our boats rise together unless I actually feel something. So Exactly. It's so interesting. I mean, that, exactly. That's what Joanna Macy has been saying for years, that mm -hmm. uh, if, if you, you, we are so afraid collectively of facing the pain, facing the grief and trauma, 
But we don't realize that if you block grief, you also block joy and creativity, right? She right. goes on to the extent to say that you also block eros. You you just it's life force. Grief is life force. Anger is life force. So you can't choose to just block grief. You also block the creative creativity that is needed to confront the uh, crisis we are in. And yeah. And the sense of solidarity. Oh my gosh, yes. And, you know, I, I want to, uh, I'm reading you a couple things that you wrote. I hope that's okay. But um, I was struck by the link that you sent me this morning, which I'll post on uh, the episode notes. But it was one of your, your latest uh, writings uh, in, in which uh, you write, white supremacy is the mother of climate crisis. So let's uh, get down to the brass tacks here, okay, uh, Kriti? Uh, you wrote, the mindset of domination that has enslaved, ridiculed, minimized, silenced, or made invisible the bodies and minds of black indigenous people of color is necessary, is necessary as in required for cutting trees, our treatment of animals, destroying or polluting ecosystems, extinction of insects, birds, and other wildlife, and the climate crisis. Say more. In a way, we don't have to say more. You just said it. But, but please, say, say, say more if you, if you like. And, and how you, you know, came to this. Yeah. For the longest time, uh, me being in activist circles and activist circles, uh, cl uh, climate ac advocacy circles are primarily white in this country. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, the when people talked about social justice from a racial point of view or uh, economic point of view, People say we always ended up framing like these are like Venn diagrams. So here's the climate crisis. And, you know, there is there is some overlap. There is some intersectionality. That's the word people used between climate crisis and the crisis of racial justice and mm -hmm. economic justice. But climate crisis is the biggest crisis humanity mm -hmm. faces. And uh and what that made the white spaces I was operating in do was that somehow say climate crisis is the biggest crisis humanity faces. And therefore, people of color, all countries should join us in looking at solutions to this existential, biggest existent, existential crisis of our times. And, and you know... Okay, yes, and people go through their usual list of things where the intersection intersection is happening. And it used to be as follows. Well, when climate change happens or deepens, it's already happening. People of color around the world and in this country will suffer the most. You know, most coal power plants are closest to where people of black people live and other people of color live and it will be people in Bangladesh and India who will drown and so on right mm -hmm. 
And they are the ones who have caused the least damage. Emissions from uh, developing countries in Asia and Africa are the lowest. So they have caused the least damage and they will suffer the most. And you need to bring climate justice into the picture, Mm -hmm. right? As you think of solutions. And somehow I myself was doing, working with this narrative and it dawned on me uh, as I read some of the pe- uh, people of color writers that this was utterly incomplete, mm-hmm. utterly incomplete. We are, we are seeing climate crisis as this beast that we should all rally around, but fundamentally neglecting how climate crisis came to be. Um, we we keep we we scientists are very comfortable saying that greenhouse gas emissions are the causes of climate crisis. Of course, I'm a climate scientist. Right. I get that. But what mentality, what mindset led us collectively as a civilization to say? It is okay to keep emitting fossil fuels. It's okay to keep bringing fossil fuels out of the ground, out of Mother Earth, by raping Mother Earth, right? Right. Uh, And most of these mining of fossil fuels is done, uh, the process in which it is done includes minimization of people of color and indigenous people around the world. If we neglect that, we we will not come to a holistic solution. We will keep saying people of color need to listen to white people. White people are saying climate crisis is the biggest crisis. But you somehow will not have, in Buddhism we say wholesome response, right response, skillful response it, it's so interesting i just very briefly i want you to continue but well i thought you were going to say holistic viewpoint and you said whole response and they go together don't they you're right. seeing things with the parts intersecting with another as a whole and then you can have that kind of wholehearted skillful response I, i'm sorry to interrupt but that's what i was hearing Exactly, exactly, right? If you don't have the, if you don't get, understand the root of the problem, the mindset that brought us there, culturally, right? Um, in spiritual spiritual traditions, non-dual traditions of the world, we always say the sense of separation between me and the tree, me and the earth and human being and human being is the problem at a spiritual level, but at a cultural level, the midwife of climate crisis is white supremacy, white body supremacy, and the the mindset it brings with it, the culture that it brings with it. So we have to under, we have to, the skillful response has to examine that white supremacy in the safety of a community that we talked about earlier. You know, it's so interesting. You really open up uh, a hornet's nest, but uh, in a good way, you know, like John Lewis, uh, good mischief, good trouble. Uh, Because um, 
I quibble with the word separate. Uh, you know, I do. I, I only use two words. I, I say isolated and disconnected. I don't say separate. Because I think part of our problem is that the hypocrisy in our country and the world is that we're all one. We're all united. So black people, come on, join us, you know. And that will obscure the discrimination that's baked in. So when we say we're all one, that, that's like a brush that covers over a lot of things. Sometimes I think it's much more difficult than what we really need to, to experience individually in our relationships and collectively is a deep respect for our uniquenesses and our diversities. And to hold that not in a oppositional way, but, but just to say, I want to know you in all of your splendor, all of your uniqueness, it, with the background of, um, you know, of, of uh, collective unity, but not smearing over the differences. So I wonder what your thoughts are. Oh, absolutely. Uh, maybe you could say more about... I, I, I think I, I, I hear what you are saying, you know, it's like all lives matter. We are one, all lives matter. Right, right, right. right. exactly. Um, <laughs> um, this, this thing that all lives matter, uh, and, you know, I've actually had people, uh, beloved white friends in climate spaces tell me, well, I am doing it. I'm doing this climate activism to protect the most vulnerable. I'm doing it for people of color. But what happens, I think the fundamental place where I want to take this to is that you might be trying to protect the most vulnerable, but you are still doing it with the mindset subconsciously and unconsciously with the mindset of a savior which the savior assumes that people of color don't know what is good for them. Look, they are still fighting about Black Lives Matter. They don't know the planet is going to crash in, uh, you know, two decades. It's a very high level, high level delusion, <laughs> high class yes. delusion. High class delusion. And moreover, moreover, the two, two fundamental things I want to come to. We can, we can absolutely tackle climate crisis by shooting chemicals in the sky, blocking the sun rays, right? Geoengineering. We can do it in ways that further harm the fabric of life, the, you know, one body that we say in Zen world, uh, by, and so that's one pathway where you use these uh, fancy tools, the safety of which hasn't been proved yet, right? Uh, or creating these fancy technologies that somehow capture carbon dioxide from the air and put it in the ground. 
we have a natural technology, by the way, to do this, which is growing trees. <laughs> trees capture the carbon dioxide and put it in uh, biomass in the soil and in the ground. But you can create these fancy technologies, but in the process, you can increase, not decrease, income inequality. Okay? You can give the right to do this process to people who are already ultra rich. You can create rene even renewable energy in a way that increases the wealth gap. So that's one, one big paradigm. Mm -hmm. The other paradigm is, and I don't know what kind of world that will be where a few organizations, corporations, and individuals control renewable energy, control how carbon is sucked from the atmosphere, and so on. The other, the other range of possibility, possible solutions, is where you understand very deeply that this mindset, white uh, culture, is the fundamental cause uh, that has led to climate crisis. And you cut that culture, begin to look at it, that culture at its root, and you begin to uh, manifest, you begin to do things that heal the trauma that has come from uh, centuries of uh, racism. Uh, where am I going with this? Give me a moment, it will become oh, clear. Oh, take your time. If you give power and money back to communities where from where it was stolen, right, and you embed climate solutions on the back of these financial reparations, you can create a world which will be very different from the first option that I just explained. Mm -hmm. uh, please ask me questions because I think I have jumped several hoops here. And uh, uh, this the story might make it clearer. Um, I In 2011, uh, Hurricane Sandy hit New York. Mm -hmm. We lost power in our New Jersey neighborhood at the time for 11 days. And you know, when you lose power in America, everything goes with it, right? Phone connection, water heating, gas, you know, electric heating in kitchen. Uh, I really had to call my mother and aunts in India to get their teachings on how to face the chaos. Because you know what? In developing countries, they lose power very often. They can sink through the night when there is no power. Uh -huh. They have ways to take care of mosquitoes and bugs that are in their neighborhood. Where I'm going with this is that we need people of color at all levels, but especially at leadership levels within climate community uh, to help us face the chaos that we are going to face. Right. I love how you go back and forth, and this must just be part of your character, between the practical and the 
sort of bedrock viewpoint and back to the practical and back to the sort of essential point. You know, one thing that came up as you were talking was this story about a, an aboriginal uh, elder who uh, entertained a visit from some white Western people uh, who had come to, uh, to help with a project. It perhaps was an ecological project. And the story goes, she, she told them, if you've come here to save us, then you but just just assume turn around and and head back, but if you've come here because you've understood that your liberation is bound up with mine, then come on in and we'll do you know we'll make some trouble together. We'll do a piece of work together. Yes, yes, that's that's a beautiful uh, quote I've heard so many times. Yes, that captures a lot of what I am saying and I am tying with it. Thank you for noting my style goes from, you know, I, I spread the fan and then I try to say, oh, here is how the different petals are connected. Mm, um, mm -hmm. the, the fundamental piece, uh, and I'll connect it to a Zen story. Sure. Um, uh, my root teacher in his uh, Teshos in his Dharma talks used uh -huh. to say, look, uh, when you go deep into Mushin, uh, the fundamental reality, the Shunyata, um, there, is no, there is no me and you, right? His name was Kurt. So there is no Kurt. There is no Buddha, you know. We have so many sayings you would know, you know, if you see the Buddha, kill the Buddha. But, but he used to say, yes, yes, of course. When I get a check from work, I will deposit that check in the bank. Uh, but otherwise, there is no Kurt, right? <laughs> uh, what I'm going with this is as follows. Why is even that check Kurt's check? If I get a check which says Kriti on it. This is where my personal questioning is at the moment. Why do we create boundaries when it comes to money and finances? It is a lot of the economy we live in today is based on stolen labor, stolen land. Mm. The climate crisis we are in is caused by burning fossil fuels, which have once again enriched some people and impoverished others, right? Uh, the, the process of polluting the environment has gone hand in hand with increasing the wealth gap. Now, those of us who have the wealth, who are getting those moderate or big checks. What I am arguing here is that uh, to heal this se uh, separation, we need, to, we need to question how much of that check really belongs to one person. If there is no separation, uh, we need to do that. And then on this fundamental understanding on this bedrock is where we want to build the house of our climate solutions. 
because if we do it without it, we might get add another few hundred years to life of uh, life on this planet, but it will continue to be a very disturbed society. I have read about a mysterious and yet to be named direct action network. Can you tell us about it? Can you give us a, a hint as to what's to come? Um, this mysterious, uh, you know, what I have been talking for last uh, 45 minutes or so with you is uh, a lot of it is influenced uh, by my friends from this network. This network will release its uh, handbook. Uh, so far, we've had a lot of uh, not so public meetings where we have discussed how racial healing in the form of financial reparations can come together with a mitigating climate crisis. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we've had some trainings uh, in medicine, some in California, some in Colorado, but the network will uh, be more public in a month from now. Uh, and its its fundamental premise is uh, we need to take care of our trauma. We need to leverage the power of community, power of friendships, power of belonging. If we don't have, we don't necessarily use the language that we have used today in this conversation, but if we don't have that soil of relationships, we cannot build our movement. And we need to do civil disobedience in a very strategic manner. It's not just the, the network is arguing that we don't just do direct action on the streets for our catharsis, emotional catharsis. Mm -hmm. We have to very strategically put pressure on specific points where decisions are taken or where money is moved or where uh, power is used in abusive ways, right? So I, sometimes in the movement, uh, you know, a lot of us have marched in our lives, but marching doesn't create pressure for any organization or individual, right? It's like people are happy to report marching is happening, which is very different from saying this coal power plant's continued operation depends on these five individuals and we are gonna put pressure on these individuals in a way that doesn't perpetuate trauma, but rather gives everyone involved a chance to heal, including those five people who have to make a decision. Uh, so yeah, this I'm very excited, uh, curious about how the, this network will be received publicly. Um, if people want to stay in touch with the development of this network and also with your work and your writing and teaching, uh, why don't you let our listeners know how, how to stay in touch? Uh, absolutely. Thank you so much for asking that. Boundlessinmotion.org. 
Boundless in Motion. Uh, that's the website. And if you go on the, you know, there is a writing section where there is interviews and podcasts. And the main page also has links to the zine and other reading materials from the network. Um, and the, the, the three components of the work that I do outside of me being a climate scientist is really looking at the inner work, right? Trauma healing and trauma resilience. Uh, the second is community, the soil of relationships that we talked about. And the third is strategic action, strategically saying no, right? Um, we need to know what we are saying yes to, and we need to say what we are saying no to and build those institutions that will make both of those possible. So uh, there's just a lot of material on that website. And uh, you can also find me on Facebook and Twitter, but I I like to respond to everything I receive. So I'd welcome any questions and comments. Well, it's been such a pleasure uh, to find um, a, a, a real sort of original um, person of no rank and uh, someone who's still working to integrate and to connect the pieces. I think connecting the dots and seeing how things are intrinsically connected is the real or a real act of resistance and a radical act and and you continue to do that and it's very inspiring i'm really grateful for the opportunity to meet you uh, even if it's just online this time and look forward to our paths crossing at some point in person thank you so much joseph that's been a very um, very joyous for me to connect with you as well. And I know so deeply, just reading a few of your articles made it clear how much you understand trauma and how much you understand some of what traditional Buddhist teachings haven't addressed, right? And how it's important to bring together these different lineages that we hold, you know, and braid them together, so to speak, to address uh, where we are today, you know? So thank you so much. And I, I hope there will be more opportunities to connect. I do too. Take care, Kriti. Thank you so much. That's our show for today. The Lotus and the Fire is produced by Deep Streams Zen Institute. The music is by Lou Richmond. Greg Wirth edited the audio. I'm Joseph Bobro. To learn more about Deep Streams, visit our website, deepstreams.org, and subscribe to the show so you can listen to new episodes as soon as they drop. Go to anchor.fm slash joseph-bobro to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice. To provide feedback about the show, contact us at bobro at deepstreams.org. And please leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. Thanks. Until next time, 